This is a 2021 Rheumatology Year in Review. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Pearl S. Buck said one faces the future with one's past. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to review our past, namely 2021. So let's begin with, how did you feel about 2021? Was it not like, almost like an incomplete kind of year? I think the feeling was we were waiting for the other shoe to drop, meaning it wasn't back to normal and we were waiting for something to happen. What were we waiting for? I think we were largely waiting for COVID to abate, go away. We were spending time worrying about vaccination and boosters and whether or not we should meet people again and that odd mix of politics and vaccine knots. Wondering when my past normal life was going to return from me, my kids, my family, my job, my church, my hockey league, my whatever. Um, again, not only was our, our lives affected, but our practices were affected. Most of us wanted to return to normal practice, but yet we weren't yet in normal practice because of the predicament, the, the era and, you know, safety seems to be at the forefront of all of our decisions. Um, and, and, and that's kind of burdensome. I think most of us um, had a lot of things we despised about the past year. But you really want to get someone, you know, riled up and apoplectic. Just mention the words Zoom or virtual and watch the eye rolls and the antagonism roll out. Um but that's the way of the world. That's what we found ourselves in, like it or not. I think we need to understand that despite this negativism of waiting for the other shoe to drop, a lot of major things happened in the world of rheumatology. Major advances, game-changing new drugs, new worries, new challenges. And that's what this podcast is going to review for you. So for better or worse, this is my list sort of backed up by what you read, you know, what was popular on our website as we cover the news and the new journal reports um, each week. Um, also by what was in the conversation and uh, what's the rest of the world talking about. Usually this list of 10, top 10, begins with a discussion of new drugs, new FDA approvals, and also new indications of old drugs. So let's begin with that. First off, the FDA set another record with a record number of drugs being approved, that being 50, and that excludes uh, vaccinations and EUAs and gene therapy products, et cetera. So um, amongst that 50, there were at least four that impacted you as a rheumatologist. Can, do you know what they are? I'm sure you can think of a few. One would be um, vocal sporn for lupus nephritis. The second would be anaphrolimab, for also for lupus. And third, avacapan, the C5A receptor antagonist for ANCA-associated vasculitis. The fourth one, you're never going to guess. You'd have to look up and spend a lot of time trying to find it, but it's a new drug for myasthenia gravis. There are very few drugs, in the, and I think this is the first biologic for myasthenia gravis. It's called um, Vivagart, or the generic name is god-awful long, F-gartamod, F-gartigamod, F-gartigamod. Good luck with that. Um, 
you're going to have to look it up if you're treating patients with myasthenia gravis. But it is a, a novel, and it's an antibody fragment that binds to the neonatal, neonatal FC receptor and lowers uh, immunoglobulin levels, including antibodies against the, um, the receptor um, that drives this disease. I think it's important, and it's novel. Next, number two, would be new FDA indications, old drugs, new uses, and we're not talking about old drugs. A lot of these are brand new drugs that were approved in the last few years, but now, because of ongoing research, now have new indications. This includes bolimumab being approved for use in lupus nephritis. It includes tocilizumab in ILD-associated uh, or systemic sclerosis-associated ILD. Rolonisep, the IL-1 inhibitor for recurrent pericarditis, sometimes seen by rooms, usually managed by cardiology. Uh, IVIG, um, thank God we have an FDA-approved uh, drug for idiopathic inflammatory myositis. Secukinumab adds to its list by now having two new indications, that being uh, pediatric psoriatic arthritis and pediatric enthesitis-related arthritis. JAK inhibitors actually had a number of new indications. Upadacitinib has indications, new indications for atopic dermatitis and adult psoriatic arthritis. Tofacitinib got a new indication for ankylosing spondylitis. And baricitinib, yeah, it got a new indication for COVID, the thing that everybody's fretting about. Uh, and lastly, aprimalas got a new indication for mild to moderate cutaneous psoriasis. Um, I'm not including in here generic indication, uh, new, new generics or, or new biosimilars. The biosimilar market seems to be going almost nowhere at least not until 2023-2024. Number three on my list, I talked about them already, and that is advancing lupus therapy for the future with three new biologic indications. That includes anafrolimab, a general indication for lupus, active lupus, Um, just like belimumab was generally indicated for active lupus, but now belimumab is indicated for lupus nephritis, and anafrolimab, the type 1 interferon receptor inhibitor, is also um, being used in lupus. These are major. These are really major. Again, while I have critiqued these and said, oh, gee, I don't think the results were as strong as I'd like them to be or whatever, they're major because we're moving beyond um, prednisone, dangerous, hydroxychloroquine, not good enough by itself, but still pretty good. Wait a few minutes. I'll talk about hydroxychloroquine. And then mycophenolate and azathioprine. I think the addition of three new biologics to our arsenal um, is going to spur new research and advance therapeutics in lupus significantly. Uh, And it's up to you to push the envelope here. So how are you going to use these going forward? How are they going to impact your therapy? What should you worry about if you're going to use these drugs? Well, you know, as far as the, the side effects and whatnot go, these seem to be really quite safe, as safe as any other biologic that you use. So that's sort of the good news. Let's wait and see. Um, number four is Super H. H stands for hydroxychloroquine or HCQ. You know, you know it's sort of a common drug. It's a, it's a historic drug. Why are we talking about it here in 2021 um, going forward into 2022? I mean, the data on hydroxychloroquine has gotten to such a point, you could almost argue everybody should be on it. There was a time uh, that crazy me used to say, 
think everybody should be on a little bit, little bit of methotrexate, given that inflammation is the main driver of a lot of disease um, in all medical disciplines. And that low-dose methotrexate, I'm not talking 15, I'm talking 7 and a half, 10. You know, of course, nobody took me up on that. And there's no data for that. I would make the same claim here about hydroxychloroquine, where there is strong data, especially in RA and lupus. Whether the drug is used as monotherapy or as combination therapy, hydroxychloroquine always makes things look better. I mean, my goodness. In both RA and in lupus, you know, it's what? Cause less cardiovascular death. It lowers lipid levels. It decreases the risk of developing diabetes mellitus. It has overall better disease control. In lupus, you have better pregnancy outcomes and better overall survival. You know, it's hard to argue against any use of hydroxychloroquine any, in any patient with either lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. We know the rheumatoid arthritis data from the RAIN network and the triple DMARD studies, but you've been repeating that for many years in your practice with all those silent benefits in your many, many patients. Hydroxychloroquine is on this list because it's been in the news. It's been a hot button drug since the beginning of COVID where it was shown to do no good. So it was highly controversial. Does it cause heart problems? Does it, you know, is there a downside? What about the myopathy the ner- that could occur? I mean, a lot of crazy things were said about hydroxychloroquine, but you know, you've used this drug for many, many years. And it's probably one of the safest drugs that you use. It's all drugs need to be monitored, no doubt. But this is truly one of the safest drugs you use. Then it got into the news by being in short supply. Um, And so, um, but this is a major linchpin in the practice of rheumatology and the management of at least those two disorders. Dr. Marty Bergman wrote a really interesting uh, blog on the RoomNow website called The Nine Lives of Hydroxychloroquine. It was like one of the most read articles I think we've ever published. I'll, I'll link it to this the show notes here so that you can read it if you want. It's a really great article by, by Marty talking about the history of hydroxychloroquine. You're all married to hydroxychloroquine, are you not? Number five, something you're not married to, and that's Zoom. You are split between being a Zoomatologist or hating Zoomatology. And by Zoom, I mean, you know, virtual meetings, whether it's you're using Microsoft Teams or the Zoom or Google Meetings or whatever, doesn't really matter. You're bothered um, when you have to engage this way. Um, I don't know why you're bothered. You don't have to get dressed up. Just do your hair, put on a clean shirt, and the rest we don't care about, you know, honestly. But Zoom is technology that's making us functional right now. The question is, are you tilting against technology or are you uh, leaning into the challenge of technology to be a zoomatologist meaning someone who's prepared to use technology going forward in the practice of medicine your 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 clinical practice your your business and however you do your education or engagements you know this is an important point you know if you want to embrace the past you're going to get more what you got in the past you want to move forward, get better, progress, be part of the future. Don't be one of those guys who has a flashing 12 on your VCR and don't know how to work the VCR and don't use electronic medical records and technology is the devil and blah, blah, blah. You know, get on board. Um, this is the challenge uh, for last year and this year. 
Number six on my list, avacapan for anchor-associated vasculitis. Avacapan is this new um, C5A receptor antagonist approved for severe anchor-associated vasculitis, meaning GPA and MPA, those being patients who are also taking corticosteroids. Why is this important? Well, clearly we have so few options in these vasculitides. We have few. I mean, steroids, 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 cytoxin, oh my God. And now, thankfully, rituximab in the last few years. This potentially addresses the issue of steroid toxicity, which is significant in these people. Um, my only worry here is that um, although FDA approved in the approval process, the vetting of the data was sort of controversial. The advisory board, the arthritis uh, advisory board for the FDA had a split vote on whether this was an effective and safe and approvable drug, but yet it is FDA approved. Uh, time and practice will tell us. Clearly, there's a strong unmet need for these patients, and I believe that's a major reason why the drug was approved. Next, another approved drug, number seven on my list, tocilizumab. It's become the Swiss army knife drug for rheumatologists. What do I mean by that? Well, it's already been approved for RA, polyarticular JIA, systemic onset JIA. GIACTA studies showed that it's highly effective in GCA. And then now we have an indication in scleroderma. It's been approved for those patients with systemic sclerosis and ILD. Uh, wait, there's more. It's also had an emergency use authorization from the FDA for use in patients with severe COVID requiring steroids and supplemental oxygen. So yeah, it's all over the place. And I think it's partly because it is profound in its effects at controlling inflammation through IL-6 inhibition. Its safety is highly, highly successful. And those situations that I, where it's got a current indication and is going to be used in the future for new indications are significant unmet um, needs areas. That includes scleroderma. I mean, is there any worse, harder, more difficult, more challenging disease than progressive systemic sclerosis? My goodness, no. Now, we had an intednib last, last year be approved, and now the addition of tocilizumab, where it's been shown to halt the progression of um, pulmonary function deterioration in patients with ILD and systemic sclerosis. These are game changers. They're moving the needle on a condition that really had almost no movement for too many years. Number eight, we're getting to the end of the list the big item maybe of the year, and that is uh, FDA adds warnings to the JAK inhibitors. Uh, as you know, we covered a lot of this at ACR meeting. If you want to learn more about this issue and the analysis of the data, go to the RoomNow website and look at either the articles or the videos on this. There are a ton of them. We're talking about the Pfizer-sponsored study of tofacitinib, usual dose plus high dose against TNF inhibitors in high-risk RA patients over the age of 50 with other cardiovascular risk factors. It's the so-called 1133 study, also known as the oral surveillance study. The bottom line, which has been rolling out for since 2019, 2020, 2021, is that the use compared to TNF inhibitors, uh, tofacitinib has more cardiovascular deaths. Compared to TNF inhibitors, there's more venous thromboembolic events, especially with the higher dose of tofacitinib. 
and compared to TNF-inhibitors, there's more cancer events, specifically lymphoma and uh, lung cancer. So again, these are sort of worrisome uh, warnings. It's going to result in a box warning for tofacitinib, but wait, also baricitinib and apatacitinib because those JAK inhibitors treat the same indications as does tofacitinib, so they're going to have a box warning. It's up there. It's on there now for these major issues of cardiovascular cancer and VTE, especially in high-risk patients. So is this going to change your practice? It might could, but you know what? It hasn't changed my practice. Um, and discussions with many rheumatologists say it's going to have a minor effect because these are rare events. If you look at the data, you have to understand the trials that led to the, the, these damning results and recommendations were done in older individuals with multiple risk factors. In those people, the number needed to harm NNH was somewhere between 250 and 700 plus to get these bad events meaning that these are really, really uncommon. If you skew the data back to people under age 65 or just over 50, the, the, the number needed to harm actually goes way up. Um, so it becomes even more. So the point being is that in our usual use of JAK inhibitors in patients with RA or, or PSA or one of the other indications, you know, we don't see these events. And that's been borne out in registries and other, you know, sort of, big data reviews, these are relatively rare events. You still need to safeguard against them, especially in high-risk individuals, but how they're going to affect your practice remains to be seen. Number nine on my list is new biologics for giant cell arteritis. What? Well, we have one that's already approved, right? That's um, the use of tocilizumab in patients with steroid-dependent giant cell arteritis, or GCA, but in the last year plus, we've had two big studies that could be adding to that list. One, um, mavrolimumab, the anti-GMCSF receptor monoclonal antibody study that was done, uh, studied in GCA, showed at 26 weeks, those that were on the biologic had um, better sustained remissions, 83 versus 50% versus those that are on steroids alone. And they had um, less steroid, steroid, less GCA flares during steroid tapering, 19% versus 46%. Again, that's going to probably go into more trials and maybe future approval. Secukinumab has also been studied, quite surprisingly. There's a biologic rationale for each of these. They, inf inflammation is mediated through these pathways. The Titan study was actually presented at ACR two months ago. And this is a, another large study where you look at the one-year results, those that were on secukinumab had more sustained remission versus placebo, 59 versus 9%. They also did really well with steroid tapering. So the question is, do we need biologics in GCA or do you want to continue that steroid habit? You are in love with steroids, you rheumatologists. And yes, you know the hazards and yes, you do wean, but not quite enough. And you tend to use steroids as the easy go-to drug. I think Neil Sedaka was probably a rheumatologist breaking up with steroids is hard to do. No, I'm not going to sing it. But it's a big problem. And does it mean that you're willing to quickly let go of steroids and move to these newer, more expensive, unknown therapies to you, but the data looks really good? The question is, are we going to move the needle forward or not? 
you're going to decide in 2022. I'm going to end with another question about IL-23 inhibitors. There seems to be a lot of data, a lot of new IL-23 inhibitors. There's three that have been FDA approved for psoriasis only. That includes tildrakizumab, rizinkizumab, and gaselkamab. Of these, only gaselkamab, tremphia, is FDA approved for use in psoriatic arthritis. But believe me, the other two are hot on its tail, meaning they've done the trials in PSA, and they're probably going to be approved uh, maybe in the next year or two. Um, and we're going to have three IL-23 inhibitors, in addition to the IL-17 inhibitors, of which we have three. And now JAK inhibitor is getting into this space. It's getting real busy. Dan Ricciardi in Brooklyn, a good friend and rheumatologist, said, geez, I got more drugs for psoriatic arthritis than I have patients with psoriatic arthritis. And it's getting kind of cluttered and difficult to make decisions. Hopefully, the guidelines so far really haven't helped us very much, to be honest with you. I mean, obviously, you're going to use biologics in patients who are refractory to conventional therapy, like methotrexate, um, and then TNF inhibitors. But, you know, where uh, you use these and which you use is going to be determined over time. I think it's an important advance. I think it's one where you're going to decide the future. So that's it for... 2021. We're going to close that chapter and move on. The next big thing in 2022 is, of course, Room Now Live, the fourth year of the virtual live streaming meeting where you either attend or watch it from home. Um, we aim to be the, be the best of virtual meetings out there. The meeting is March 19th and 20th in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, go to the website, register, uh, if you're a fellow or a nurse practitioner, registration is free. If you're a rheumatologist, you're going to have to break out the credit card, and it's not that expensive. This is a world-class innovative meeting. We spend a lot of time on polling, Q&A, discussion. Um, it's less data, more discussion. That's what makes it great. So we can't end 2021 without talking about some of our brethren and colleagues who have passed away in 2021. These are significant losses to us as friends and to the community and healthcare overall. These individuals have given their lives, a lifetime of medical practice to um, the difficult management of rheumatology patients. Um, and they did it with a great deal of love and zeal um, they're going to be sorely missed. So I'm going to mention these. Um, many of them were mentors. Many of them were just great guys and gals. Um, and here's my list. I'm going to begin with a non-rheumatologist, Ron Aleko. Ron Aleko was um, an employee of the American College of Rheumatology, and he's the guy that managed the meetings, set up the meeting sites, ran the meeting, was usually running around with a walkie-talkie, big personality, very funny, warm, wonderful. He's responsible for a lot of the success of the American College of Rheumatology. We're going to miss Ron. The Rooms, Dr. Bill Palmer, wonderful rheumatologist and friend from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, always called me JC. Um, Dr. Arnold Postlewaite, a real gentleman, a great researcher. I was lucky to work with him on a number of projects from Memphis, Tennessee, he'll be sorely missed. Jim Fries from Stanford, a major game changer in outcomes in rheumatology um, and, and a leader at Stanford, uh, really a wonderful guy. Dr. Thomas Benedict, University of Pittsburgh, uh, historian for rheumatology, 
all those gout um, photos that the ACR have have passed through Dr. Benedict to the ACR. Uh, and then a lot of other people, I'll just mention them briefly. Uh, Dr. Bessie Sullivan from New Jersey, uh, the great Tom Palella from the Chicago area, Professor Howard Bird in Leeds, the real gentleman, scholar, and mentor, Dr. Joachim Calden from Erlangen, uh, Dr. Mohammed Faisal Khan, um, Dr. Joseph Bailey Jr., uh, Dr. Mark Roger Chevrier um, with Janssen and, and a serious lupus researcher will be sorely missed. Dr. Ramal, Dr. Kamal El-Ramahi, uh, Dr. Robert Chad Wisco, Dr. Merrill Douglas Benson, Dr. Ralph Tabib, Dr. Runyas Powers Jr., Dr. Stephen S. McIntyre, Colonel Walter Moore, the rheumatologist, um, Professor Derek Brewerton, who was one of the gentlemen who um, discovered HLA-B27. And lastly, Los Angeles' own Dr. Ira, Dr. Alan Ira Salek. These gentlemen are gone, but will never be forgotten. That's it for this week on the podcast. Tune in next week.